we're going to briefly, very, very briefly, maybe for about 10 uh, minutes or 15, uh, go through just this whole concept of they didn't say sorry. Um, it, it can be a hindrance uh, to reconciliation. And we're going to take this week just thinking about hindrances uh, to reconciliation because these things, I think, prolong a very painful process that uh, if we think deeply about them, if we think biblically about this process, it can be shorter, it can be healthy, it can be God-honoring. And uh, maybe just prepare your minds. One of the other things we're going to be thinking about, this may be very true about us who are married, but also some of you who are dating, some of you who are very close friends. One of the topics that's coming up this week is uh, the silent treatment. As we think about hindrances uh, to uh, reconciliation, the silent treatment. How do you deal with it? How do you deal with it? So this silent treatment can be real, but uh, we can find a way uh, in our hearts to be able to find reconciliation that is not for long, that is not painful. But one of the other hindrances to reconciliation is what we are looking at today, um, an apology that has failed. One, because someone did not say it, but also two, because we are demanding an apology before the reconciliation can take place. Now, let me just read for you. I think these, these are very interesting facts uh, that I want to read for you here. Um, but also they are facts to a particular level, okay? Um, this is from dictionary.com, and I'm so sorry for reading many of these for you, but I'm going to get into God's word. I just found this to be fascinating when I was looking at them. They're not our main message today. They're just to whet our appetite. They're like starters as we get into this topic. Uh, but this guy writes and says, um, from dictionary.com, writes and says there are about six words um, that ruin an apology. And he says one of them is the word you. And he says there's no better way to apologize without actually apologizing than following an I'm sorry in quotes with a three-letter pronoun that says the word you, where you go like, I'm sorry, you, and then they add feel that way. I'm sorry that you think that. I'm sorry that you misinterpreted things. That word you can ruin an apology. The other word that he mentions here, he says, there's a little conjunction here called but, and I think someone already mentioned that in our discussion, where you apologize, but you add that word, but. This little conjunction may be the ultimate apology and here later. It says you never know what will come after it, but whatever it is, it's bound to stir you away from sincerity down the road of excuses. But to leave the phrase, I'm sorry, but just leave it at the door. Okay? Do not use that word, but. Don't use that word, but. The other word is if I hurt you. I'm sorry. If you think I was wrong. And now, this is some other word, number four. Word number four, the word is I. It's obviously okay to start an apology with I, he says. As in, I am sorry. But if the rest of your apology is filled with I this, I that, then there's a good chance you're making it all about you and not about the person that you hurt. Be mindful of how you incorporate this term, he says. And that word right there, I'm sorry, but not sorry. You rather leave the situation alone, okay? If you're not yet sorry, just do not start 
pretending to be sorry. And so wanting to say I'm sorry but not sorry is is very is very very sarcastic. And so you rather leave the situation alone. At that point, it's not even an apology. You're just adding fuel to the fire. But what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about I'm sorry? What does the Bible say about I'm sorry? The phrase I am sorry. I looked up a couple of phrases and, and passages, and uh, it's it's difficult to look for the word "I'm sorry" from the scriptures, but you do see the attitude. Um, you see the the Bible implying that this is a very important process. And one of the phrases that came to mind first for me was Psalm fifty-one. This is a psalm written by David after he sinned against. Um, Bathsheba and Uriah killed the husband, and uh, Bathsheba at this point is uh, is uh, pregnant and expecting. I don't know if it was after Nathan had comforted him, which I believe it was, but he says in verse three, Psalm fifty-one, verse three and four, he says, "For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me against you." You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That is a process to repentance, but I think those are very beautiful words when it comes to an apology. They are very beautiful words. Why you say, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. I know these words are to the Lord, are to God, and they're not directed to a human being. But I think one of the things that is clear from this passage is admitting your wrong is biblical. Admitting your wrong is biblical. Of course, these words, like I said before, are not directed to a human being, they're directed to the Lord. But there's a, a debate, however, concerning this passage. And here goes the debate. Did David sin against Bathsheba? Did he sin against Uriah? Why then does he say against you only have I sinned in referring to the Lord? And the answer to this question may help us understand that this passage is actually implying and saying that if the sin that we are talking about here, that David is talking about here, having sinned against God is also a sin against Uriah. And there's no question about that. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. But that also implies that our sin against people, in instance, is sin against God. When we sin against people, we are sinning against God. And he says, against you, you only have I sinned. Now, why therefore should we only repent to God alone and not people as well? Admitting our sin before those we've sinned against is biblical. And I think we need to acknowledge that part from Psalm 51. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You imagine you approach someone with that attitude, even with those statements, and say, hey, I know my sin. My sin is before me. Against you have I sinned. 
and have done evil in your sight. In referring to the human being, I think this level of admitting our sin is entirely biblical, is entirely helpful. Number two, number two, I want to believe from the book of Matthew that God takes reconciliation seriously. God takes reconciliation seriously to the point that we are banished from his presence. And in Matthew chapter 5, 23 to 24 says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there, there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He's saying, your worship to me is important. Your sacrifice to me is important. These offerings you're bringing are important. But if there's something between you and your brother, first hold on, put your stuff here. Go to your brother. Be reconciled. Okay? When you're done, you may return. Now, if this is the presence of the king, he's simply saying you are banished from my presence until this is reconciled. It is important for us to reconcile. It's important for us to say, I'm sorry. You're going back to the brother. You're going back to the sister to say, before you, I have sinned. I have sinned. For this verse, do you notice the importance of reconciliation? So if you go to the brother, how does this conversation begin? You've left the presence of God from offering for the altar. How does this conversation begin between, between you and your brother? Does it begin, uh, brother, if I have sinned against you? No, that's not how it begins. It will begin, my sin is before me. And in instance, you're implying, I saw my sin while I was before God making my sacrifice and offering before God. I saw my sin. It was before me. God revealed it to me. I remembered that there was something between you and I. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Now, having mentioned those two things, I need to end here with the third one. And the third one is simple. God does not require an apology for you to be able to forgive he does not require an apology for you to be able to forgive. So we cannot sit back and say, I'm not forgiving because I have not received an apology. We need to be reconciled to our brothers. We need to go and confess our sins before them and uh, repent before them and ask for forgiveness. But for us to be able to forgive, we do not need an apology first. Look at Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. This is at the point of his crucifixion. The Bible says two others in verse 34, two others in Luke 23, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. He said, The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
there were also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hung railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed, and, and, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, I read for you the full context of that scene right there on the cross. For you to understand something, that here were men who were hurling insults at Christ, who were sitting against him to the point of death, but he looks moves his eyes from the people to God and he says, Father, forgive them for they not not know what they do. They do not know what they do. Forgive them. Christ did not wait for an apology. The Bible says, even while we were still sinners, what did he do? He died for us. And that's the clear, clear picture of the gospel. Before we even understood what we had done, he said, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Before we even had a clue of what we had done, he said, you are forgiven. Isn't that amazing? That he doesn't require an apology for us to be able to forgive. And I think it was Grace who mentioned before, he says, forgive just as you are forgiven in Christ Jesus. Now, the reason I brought up this topic, one of the reasons is... A while ago, sometime, um, I, I felt exactly the same way as I described, wanting an apology. I mean, the Bible does say if you have something against the brother, go to him and uh, you're hoping for reconciliation, you want to talk about it. So I went to a brother and I was hoping for reconciliation, hoping to talk about it. But deep inside me, I was really hoping for an apology really hoping for an apology. And so I gathered my guts, put myself together and went to this guy and said, well, this is what happened. And uh, there was no question about what had happened. Um, there was no trying to remember what had happened. It was a clear incident and there was no apology. Hey man, I was, I was broken in the sense that I'm thinking what is going on? I felt so bad, I went away, and for a long time, for a long time, this thing was just chewing at my heart. And I love to go jogging, um, especially when I want to think. And so I went jogging, and which time I'm going jogging, I put on a podcast uh, to listen to. I like listening to uh, Tim Keller. He has a way in which he logically thinks through issues, uh, uh, especially current issues, and he has a way through which he looks at the scriptures and he explains them. One of the other guys I love listening to is Ray Pritchard. And then uh, there's another gentleman, uh, um, uh, Phil Mosher, who I also love listening to. But here I am running and I'm listening to Ray Pritchard and he's talking about forgiveness. And most of the verses he's talking about are familiar verses. I know them. I, I know them. Ephesians chapter 4, he's quoting all these things concerning bitterness. And then he came to the point where he clearly explained, 
and I, I do remember the words he used. He said, forgiveness is from God to us, to others. And he talked about other things. He said, mercy is from God to us, to others. Kindness is from God to us, to others. Sometimes we think we are the ones who are invented forgiveness. But we forget that forgiveness is from God to us, to others. But all of this time I'm still running. Until he shared a story that at this end of this story, I just didn't have the energy to run anymore. I just walked. I just walked. I could not believe. And I, I want to play for you this portion of his podcast. It's about maybe five minutes. Please listen to it. Listen to it. And just uh, think about these words. Think about this story. There's a story that he shared. I think he best shares this story. I don't even want to water it down. But let me allow you to listen uh, to this story by Ray Pritchard as he shares it. So, some years ago, I was speaking at a Christian conference way up in the woods in northern Wisconsin. And I just mean you had to land there at that airport in the middle of the state of Wisconsin and you had to drive about an hour and a half and you got on this dirt road and you were like 500 miles from civilization and you just drive through the woods and there's a left-hand turn and you go up over the hills and there in the middle of the forest there's a Christian camp and I was up there speaking so many years ago now I was speaking that week all week long on forgiveness what forgiveness is and how we, how it works and how we can learn to forgive others. And, and I noticed there was a, a woman who sat, who sat in the front or near the front in all the meetings. I don't think I ever spoke to her. She was tall. She was well dressed and she just sat there. She was in all the meetings. Like I say, I, I didn't know who she was. I finished my messages and went back home. And a few days later, I got the following letter from her. Dear Pastor Pritchard, I left camp with a full heart yesterday. Thank you for your ministry among us. I am the tall woman who sat pretty much front and center to you. Your last message was deeply challenging to me to go beyond just forgiving to the point of neutrality. Really, I was talking about going and blessing your enemies. Since Christ pro commanded that we be proactive in this matter, it can only be done by his power. Humanly speaking, I am bankrupt just where he wants me. And I say, I don't know. To this day, I don't know what her personal circumstances were that led her to say that. I am bankrupt just where he wants me. And then she had a little smiley face in the text. She says, I carried the enclosed article around in my Bible for several years. I can't tell you how many times I've read it and reread it. I want you to have a copy for your illustration file. And she had, she had Xeroxed a couple of pages from Voice of the Martyrs. You know the name Richard Wormbrand, who spent 14 years in a communist prison in Romania. And a number of years ago, Richard Wormbrand had written this article for, for Voice of the Martyrs. And this is the article that she had carried around and read over and over again. It's the article she copied and sent to me. I just read a little part of it. 
Richard Warren Brand says, let me tell you about a man who was in prison with me. Demetri was a pastor whose backbone had been beaten with a hammer. When certain vertebra was hit, he was paralyzed so that he could only move his neck. You can imagine what a tragedy this was. If he had been in a home or hospital, he would have had a wife, mother, or nurse to take care of him. How would we, his fellow prisoners, take care of him? There was no running water to wash him, no linen to change him. He lay there in his human waist. He could not stretch out his hands to drink a cup of water. The others who could walk and work were taken to slave labor during the day. When they came back in the evening, he had to wait for them to help him drink a cup of water. He lay like this in prison for a couple of years. It was hell on earth. Then in December 1989, Romania had a revolution and the dictator Ceausescu was overturned. Freedom came and Dimitri was released from prison to be with his family and friends. No doctor could help him, but now he had loving hands to help him. He still could not move hand or foot. One day, someone knocked at his door. It was the communist who had crippled him. He said to Dimitri, sir, Do not believe that I have come to ask forgiveness from you. For what I have done, there is no forgiveness, not on heaven, not on earth or in heaven. You are not the only one I've tortured like this. You cannot forgive me. Nobody can forgive me, not even God. My crime is much too great. I've come only to tell you I am sorry about what I've done. From you, I go to hang myself. That is all. He turned to leave. The paralyzed brother Dimitri said to him, Sir, in all these years, I have not been so sorry as I am now that I cannot move my arms. I would like to stretch them out to you and embrace you. For years, I have prayed for you every day. I love you with all my heart. You are forgiven. Here is the application. Go to Golgotha. Linger at the foot of the cross. Ponder the dying, bleeding form of the Son of God. And then go and do for others what God has done for you. Can I say this to you here at the end? This really isn't a sermon about our speech. That's just the outward indicator. It's not even about the attitudes of your heart. Because that's just a deeper symptom of the problem. Here's the question. How much do we really want to be like Jesus? It always comes back to that, doesn't it? How much do we really want to be like Jesus? Did he have enemies? Yeah. They hated him. They lied about him. Every evil thing that's spoken of in this text, they did to him. They slandered him. They cried out for him, crucify him, crucify him. They cheered as he died. We have our excuses. You don't know what they did to me. I'm going to hurt him like he hurt me. I don't know how much more I can take. Against all that, we have these tortured words from the cross. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. How much do we really want to be like Jesus? Which is why in the Christian life, everything keeps coming back to 
the cross. See from his hands, his feet, his head, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love or sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? If you're going to listen to a podcast before you go to bed, you can as well grow in your faith. Cabin Devils, your number one live podcast. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 9 p.m. East African time.